Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, June 8th, 2018, and you're listening to Up to Date, our weekly science recap. Kishore is on break this week, but I have a special guest. Dr. Adam Bristol is trained as a neuroscientist and currently works in the biotech industry, but I would argue his biggest claim to fame is he's my husband. Hi, Adam. <laughs> Hi, sweetie. <laughs> Hi, Andre. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this week is because uh, Kishore, before he left on break, was like, hey, did you see this breast cancer study? And I said, well, I can one up you on that. My husband was just at the major conference in which the study was first presented. So this is ASCO in Chicago. So tell us a little bit about uh, this study that's made the news and and why it's so important. Sure. Well, you know, um, the ASCO meeting is uh, really the largest annual conference of clinical oncologists in the world. So it attracts, you know, 35,000 uh, oncologists from around the world. So it's really tremendous. And one of the themes this year that I picked up was that sometimes less is more. And I think the trial that Kishore was interested in is one having to do with the treatment of breast cancer, in particular, the use of what's called adjuvant or post-surgical uh, use of an antibody called trastuzumab. Now, trastuzumab has been a long uh, has been a long term mainstay in the treatment of breast cancer, and especially for those uh, women who have what's called HER2 positive breast cancer. So, HER2 is a type of receptor on the on the surface of breast cancer cells, and what trastuzumab does is it basically blocks that. It binds to and blocks that receptor, the signaling of which uh, those cancer cells rely upon for proliferation. Now. Trastuzumab was approved uh, in the mid-2000s when the clinical trials used 12 months of therapy. So women who had had surgery for their breast cancer stayed on trastuzumab for 12 months. What the, the large Persephone trial showed, this is 4,000 patients uh, over four years, showed that six months duration of therapy of trastuzumab was non-inferior or no worse than the 12 months. And so this is important because to spare both the potential toxicity and certainly the financial toxicity of uh, additional six months of treatment is pretty significant without having to sacrifice any of the uh, benefit of that drug. I think it's an important trial too because you know people perhaps should re remember that when drugs go through clinical development, there's extensive amount of dose finding. That is, the, the companies or the sponsors are trying to determine what is the best and most efficacious and safe, safest dose. And then the regimen or how frequently or in what schedule those doses should be um, administered. Of course, you can't test all possible iterations of that. 
But once a drug is approved, certainly that is what's on the label. That's what the drug company can market to. And trials that are testing the, the possibility of reducing the amount uh, of the use of a drug is not necessarily in a pharmaceutical company's best interest. So trials like this are rarely done. And if they are done, they're going to be done by what are called cooperative groups, which are generally uh, a, a collection of disease uh, area uh, experts and um, institutions that are necessarily not-for-profit, but are trying to answer some questions that are difficult for uh, pharmaceutical companies to answer. They're not necessarily incentivized to answer. But this is really good news, of course, for patients with breast cancer, particularly HER2-positive ones, because it, you know, it means they have to do less, you know, have to be on the drug for less time, which is, which is great. And, you know, I, I can see why pharmaceutical companies wouldn't be particularly motivated to do these kinds of studies. But do you think that as, you know, our medical bills, especially in the U.S., become out of control, this kind of study might become more commonplace as we try to cut down on costs? Or do you think that this is still kind of a one-off? Well, it's a really good point. You know, I think that the Affordable Care Act, my understanding, did set up an, uh, an organization within the federal government called Comparative Effectiveness. So this is the type of research that was hoping to do head-to-head studies of different therapies to try to figure out what were more effective. And these are the types of decisions. Not only can we, we, we now, the data, not only we would need to make effective economic decisions on what's a more cost-effective solution, but often physicians want to know what is a more effective therapy. Uh, a, simply a placebo-controlled trial is not going to get you that answer because it's not being compared against something that's else as an alternative therapy necessarily that a patient you know might receive. Sometimes these these trials are run in pharma and biotech is incentivized to do them when there's an issue at hand. Sometimes they have certain what are called post-approval requirements from the FDA that they have to go and do certain studies, or there could be an emergent um, once the drug is approved and is being used in many thousands of patients versus the potentially far fewer in the clinical trial in development that they may have to go back and do some dose reductions and and, and different and new clinical studies. But uh, again, you know these companies in generally are just they're they're incentivized to. Uh, really maximize these drugs. And so uh, it's hard to get, I think head-to-head trials are important because most payer systems in other countries where it's a single payer, that is it's the federal government, or even in the US where large insurance companies are paying the bills, they're demanding what's more, uh, what what I consider value-based pricing. So they want to see the value over other standard of cares to get that to get their dollars to pay for it. So certainly these types of head-to-head trials, while they may not be a regulatory requirement in the U.S., they're becoming a reimbursement requirement. And so companies are, are I think, biting the bullet and having to do some of the really hard studies. So yeah, so maybe some insurance companies are actually motivated, you know, if pharmaceutical companies are not, to at least put some pressure on the pharmaceutical companies to show that, you know, a lower dose is not as effective. Absolutely. And the question is, when does that pressure reveal itself in actual clinical studies? I think when companies which are trying to uh, develop drugs as quickly and efficiently and cost-effectively as possible to run some of these harder studies during development may not be the most um, you know, strategically sound decision, and rather they would push it off to do it post-marketing. That is, meet the FDA's requirements and then have to go back to do some studies you know, once the drug is approved to get it reimbursed, and then even to get the physicians to be able to write that script for your drug versus another drug. Yeah, and that seems to be what happened with, what is it, tetrazumumab? Trastu- <laughs> Trastu- 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 what? 
Trastuzumab. Trastuzumab. Sorry, <laughs> you're making me. Yeah. So I, you know, so it has a brand name. You know, generally, um, I think people in the medical community use the the, the generic name mm-hmm. and all these all these molecules over time. You know, they start with just a alphabet soup of numbers and letters, but as they go through the de- drug development, there is a there is an organization that can, kind of is similar to you know the. Um, uh, I forgot the name of uh, the organization that gives you the d- domain extensions. You know, there's that mm-hmm. World Wide Web domain <laughs> right. extension. There's something like that for, for drug names uh-huh. because the syntax or the construction of a drug name actually conveys information. Sure. So the fact that it's UMAB at the end, U-M-A-B, suggests that it's a monoclonal human antibody. Cool. So, yeah. So, well, that was Anad Kishore, who's, uh, I think, out camping somewhere, hopefully some doing something fun. Um, you wanted to talk about something else, though. Yeah, no, I love this. You know, I as part of my day job, I read lots and lots and lots of, of, of papers. At least I skim through a lot of the uh, tables of contents. And um, I, you know, found one paper in a nature journal, which is called Scientific Reports, that it caught my eye because this is a um, this is an area of research that, or rather, this paper started at one place, went to a second place, and then ended up in a third place. And truth be told, when I saw the title, my head was already in the third place. And I wonder if you'll be there too. So this is a title by a an international group, with the corresponding author being Rodriguez Rojas, and the title is called "Clay Induced DNA Breaks as a Path for Genetic Diversity." antibiotic resistance, and asbestos carcinogenesis. So where does your head go when you think of clay-induced DNA breaks? Don't eat dirt? Kind of, yeah. I immediately thought of the clay-eating Peruvian parrots. And I thought to myself, if clay ingestion, or you can think is called geophagy, leads to some genetic alteration in, you know, bacteria or something, the microbiomes, it has the potential, then what's going to happen with our Peruvian parrots? That was initially where my thought was, most of the paper doesn't talk about that at all until the end of the discussion. And so it was a really fun, let me tell you briefly what they did. So it turns out that there are certain types of clays that are used as, I guess, parts of the ingredients of a lot of things that we use and consume. And they're also used in certain feeds for uh, industrial livestock. And so it turns out that if you look at these clays from a microscopic, I mean, really nanoscopic scale, they're fibrous. And so they have little fibers. That's later going to be the connection with asbestos and the nanofibers of asbestos. And what these researchers found all in vitro, so just in cell culture, only with E. coli. But what they found was these clay fibers, when you put it in the dish and then you shake the dishes, so just agitate the little dishes, you can pierce the bacteria, you can create double-stranded DNA breaks, okay? You're basically really slicing through the double helix, and that can lead to mutagenesis and the acquisition of antibiotic resistance. Hmm. And so, again, it's all in a dish, and and it requires the agitation, and it's only in a a certain time of the bacterial life cycle, the growth curve, which is called the sustained phase versus the exponential phase. And I won't bore you with the details there, and ultimately, what they found is that when you look at asbestos fibers at the, that are in the same nanoscale, again, agitating them in the presence of these uh, um, E. coli can also pierce through. So this was this. If you just stop there, this was an interesting piece of the equation because 
there have been a lot of theories on why asbestos leads to cancer, primarily a type of cancer called mesothelioma, which is really in the, in the lungs. The theory to this point has been that there's a chemical or there's something else and this kind of a mechanical shearing and causing DNA breaks, double-stranded DNA breaks, is new and can explain why even though asbestos nanofibers end up in like all of our all around our bodies why they'd only sh- uh, create cancer in the lungs and they describe biomechanically what happens in the lungs that sort of create the shearing necessary to create these double standard DNA breaks so i thought that was really interesting mm-hmm. so the it started with these you know antibiotic resistance in cattle because of the what they ingest with clays and and then it gets to the na- the nanofibers with uh, asbestos that could explain the mesothelioma and the carcinogenesis but then at the end they talk about um, gastroliths, that is animals that eat rocks, and also these uh, geophagic animals, uh, what we think of as the Peruvian parrots, but it turns out there's a number of species that eat clay, what impact they might be having on their own microbiome by doing that. And so I, I thought it, I thought it was a really cool paper. It just seemed like, I'd be, I, I would love to have a conversation with some of the scientists to figure out where do they start from? I think they probably started with the clay question. When they saw under scanning EM the fibers and how they were literally piercing the uh, bacteria, they probably thought of asbestos, and maybe there was someone on the team who was interested in asbestos. And then clearly you got to think with the ingestion of clay and kind of getting into a milieu with lots of bacteria, then you probably go to you know the, the clay-eating parrots, at least how that's how my mind works. So my story uh, this week also has to do with eating, and maybe we can in some ways a scientific nod to uh, Anthony Bourdain, whom we lost uh, to suicide yesterday. Um, and so, um, you know, if you if you are struggling with depression, it's been uh, a week in which we've had lo- you know lost a couple of celebrities, and so um, please do seek help. But the study that I wanted to talk about actually comes uh, in two parts. So the first is, you know how you're always trying to get me to eat dark chocolate and I always like milk chocolate? Yeah. Yeah. So you're right about that again. Uh, There's lots of studies showing that you're right about that. Um, Right about in what way? Well, that it's more beneficial, uh, you know, because, of course, it has a higher percentage of cocoa. And so Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple of papers presented at the experimental biology meeting in San Diego back in April that kind of caught my eye looking at 70 percent dark chocolate, uh, especially. And that's because our favorite brand, Dandelion, uh, has, you know, exclusively 70 percent dark chocolate. So here's (laughs) another study that shows that, you know, Dandelion is up to something. Uh, but basically, there was this this uh, pilot study, a couple of them, really, that showed that, in fact, the amount of chocolate in uh, these 70% bars, you just you don't need to eat, you know, a heck of a lot of it, um, can lead to upregulating multiple intracellular signaling pathways involved in T-cell activation, and also in the genes involved in both cardiovascular and brain health. So unlike resveratrol, which you have to, you know, ingest a ton of in order to mm-hmm. see any beneficial mm-hmm. effects, it sounds like, uh, you know, the the little bit of dark chocolate that people often consume after dinner is potentially good for you. Hmm. So did they study this in vivo, in, in whole animals? Were they looking at like peripheral T cells? Uh, in in whole the, humans. Whole humans. So yes. You, so I, I wish I were a participant in that study. So I get my free <laughs> chocolate. And I guess the only thing I have to give back is probably like a blood 
blood sample. Yeah. So they can look at the cells, circulating yeah. cells. And then they also did some uh, EEG work in which they looked at, you know, cognitive improvements and in, in mood and memory and saw some hmm. um, some markers of neuroplasticity, which, of course, is a buzzword in neuroscience. But these are just posters presented. So we don't want to get yeah. too excited about yeah. it. Um, but uh, that led me to something that I read about that uh, was also in Scientific Reports, uh, published on May 31st. That's the journal that you um, your clay study was in. And this is one in which another type of supplement also does seem to have a, a pretty beneficial effect, something that you and I are quite interested in, which is on longevity. Mm. Um, and here the model was Drosophila, so okay. fruit flies, a study at McGill. Um, and they showed that flies that they fed with a supplement that included both a probiotic and uh, something else uh, lived up to 66 days, which is 26 days longer than the average fly in the control group. Um, but interestingly, they also showed fewer age-related problems like insulin resistance, inflammation, and oxidative stress, which we know uh, can be some of the major drivers of age-related changes. And the idea is that, um, much like your clay paper, that um, the probiotics change the gut microbiome with respect to how we metabolize food. But the authors acknowledge that this effect might be attenuated in humans. This is always something that, you know, I worry about. It's like, you know, how much do you need to consume in, in order to really have sure. a measurable effect on your gut microbiome? You know, are you just taking, Yeah, we have you know, oceans of it in a pill is probably it's just a, a teacup, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so there's still that. But, but the results do seem to be, uh, at least for fruit flies, encouraging. And um, I think what caught my eye is that the polyphenol that they were using in addition to the probiotic um, is something called trifala. Have you ever heard about that? No. Tell me more. So it's a medicinal, um, it has medicinal usage in, in, in uh, Ayurveda, which is the traditional Indian medicine. Um, it's made from three different fruits. And most people know it as a mild laxative. Hmm. So apparently trifala plus probiotics uh, led these fruit flies to live um, almost a third longer than their counterparts. Hmm. I wonder if that just made them more regular. <laughs> and so that helped them. Yeah. 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 I mean, do you measure, do you measure like laxative function in fruit flies? That seems really hard. I mean, I, I don't doubt that someone could do it because we can do mating behavior. We can do lots of interesting behavioral analyses in fruit flies. You'd think, how the heck can you do that because they're so small? But um, with high-speed cameras and really good uh, lenses, you can capture a lot of, of a really rich, complex behavioral repertoire in our tiny little friends. But, you know, a lot of these things, you know, it is the translation to humans where they really fall down. And, you know, even with my study on the, you know, the clay fibers and inducing double-stranded DNA breaks, you know, this was all in, in vitro, you know, so it's basically, I'm making huge leaps to go from shaking an agar-plated dish to what it could actually happen in a full organism. But the data on the microbiome around interacting with and modulating the innate immune system, which we know in almost all species, is designed to protect against and to, to attack these microbial invaders, that's real. And there's got to, there's, you know, these subtle things can, can have systemic impacts despite them, you know, living in orifices and our tummies and things like that. So I just think it's a really, it's a complicated area, but the hints are just absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, I can't wait to follow it over time. Yeah. So, you know, just like many of our conversations uh, with a four-year-old in the house, we have uh, ended with potty talk. <laughs> so <laughs> that's it for Up to Date. Yeah. 
Um, this week's guest on our regular uh, Monday show is Peter Rubin, who's a senior editor at Wired, covers virtual reality. And we're going to talk about how virtual reality is not necessarily going to make us more isolated, but rather that it can, might have a huge impact on uh, connecting us socially. So that'll be our main show for next week. Uh, join us on Monday for my interview with Peter Rubin. Uh, Adam Bristol, thanks for joining us on Up to Date. Dr. Visconsis, thank you so much for having me. I'll see you at dinner. See you guys next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.